0: Good morning everybody. How you doing today? All right. Good to see you. Our wonderful weather this week was so enriching. How many of you feel like a better Christian when the sun shines just immediately? Bethany and I are like, wow, how do we just, we hear the voice of God. We want to be nice to each other and the kids. We feel better. And then we're like, oh yeah, the sun is shining. And then today our wonderful Eugene weather was like, not so fast. (laughs) But I don't know. Was it, it, from the light here, looking out the window, of the doors there. It seems like maybe the sun is shining. When you're walking in, was it peeking through the clouds at all? No. Okay. Well, luckily, the sun of God's light is shining in here. How about that? We'll Christianize everything, yes. Uh, We are in a series called No Filter. And we're talking about the words of Jesus, unfiltered, how Jesus tells us the truth, uh, even when it hurts. But you know, we have a phrase in English, we say that was brutally honest. But when Jesus speaks, though it could feel brutally honest, The reality is it's just honest. And uh, he actually, whatever he says, whether it feels good to us in the moment or not is for our own benefit, amen? Because he deeply loves us. But as we talk about this series, No Filter, it makes me think about the people in life that we all know who just have no filter on what they say uh, and and they'll say anything. And the best example of this that I can think of is children. Kids will just say anything. We had a whole program one time called Kids Say the Darnest Things, remember that? We, uh, uh, I'm going to share a story, you think it's okay if I share Kareen's story or should I wait? Or right, I didn't ask Ed, but he's my buddy, so I'm going to share it anyways. <laughs> I don't know if Ed's in here, but after first service, uh, Kareen Dasso came up and she said, I have the best story about unfiltered. And uh, apparently her and Eddie, who Eddie Dasso, how many of you know, Ed, love Ed, we love you Ed, he's my, he's my buddy. I'm going to get him, though. So he's four years old. He's four years old. And Corrine and little Eddie get on an elevator. And the doors close. And there was a heavy, heavy set lady in the elevator. And Ed goes, Mom, she's fat, huh? Ding, the doors close. <laughs> and now you're on an elevator. How many of you know that's when you want to have your kids go meet Jesus? Right at that exact moment. <laughs> Bethany goes, what I would have said is, whose kid is this? You know? <laughs> I heard another story uh, from a mom this week that I found, and and, uh, she was uh, at a hotel with her her child, her and her family, and she said this, as we were leaving the lobby of a hotel in which we were staying, our three-year-old son looked down at the doormat with the hotel logo on it. Hey, he exclaimed for everyone to hear, that's on our towels at home. Once again, the appropriate response is, whose child is this? <laughs> How many of you have friends like that, though they're not kids, but you wish you could just, I don't know whose friend this is, you know, you take them, take it home with you. Uh, Jesus is like this. He has no filter. But uh, what he speaks to us, what he says, again, it's for our own benefit, for our own good. And today we're going to look at one of the most radical sermons ever preached. I actually think it is the most radical sermon ever preached for many reasons. Uh, we've sort of sanitized it because it's become sort of part of the Christian uh, ecosystem, but it's the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter 5. But when Jesus speaks these words to these people at this time in history, it is radically reframing how they see themselves before God and how they filter, if you will, their relationship with God. And in this sermon, Jesus takes the gloves off and he really changes, not just, he doesn't just give like good points for people to live a better life. He redefines the standard of what it means to be right with God. And so this is one of those paradigm shifting moments that Jesus gives. And I think for us to catch what Jesus says in this sermon is not just reforming and radical for the people that heard it then, but it is also for us because in every generation, there is a, uh, there is a way that we sort of see ourselves in relationship with God and how God actually sees that relationship and what Christ gives to us, what Jesus gives us in this sermon helps us to accurately see our position with God and how we're to live, so on and so forth. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a series of six radical statements that, again, reframe how we filter ourselves before God. Jesus, in this sermon, he talks about anger. He talks about lust. He talks about revenge. He talks about marriage. He talks about loving your neighbor and your enemy. And he reframes all of this. And I'm going to give you a little sampler of it today as we jump into the text. So We're gonna look at Matthew chapter five, verse 21. This is what Jesus says. He says, you have heard that our ancestors were told, or in some translations it says, you have heard it said, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Now pause for a second. How many of you would say amen? I agree with that. How many of you are anti-murder here in the room, right? Anybody against it? I don't know why there's not 100% participation. (laughs) I'm gonna give you another chance. Who here is against murder? Come on. Okay. Awesome. About 80% of us, the rest of us need to ask some questions asked, you know. If I could have the ushers with me when we have that conversation, that'd be great. Uh, I'm against murder. I think most of us are uh, in the room. Obviously, our poll is not scientific because some of you were like, I don't raise my hand in church for any reason. Okay, well, that's fine. I once had a young guy in uh, my group in Medford, in my small group. This is one of of my disciples, and. kid named Scott, he's a good, good dude. I don't, I don't know where he's at now. So since I'm not personally friends with him anymore, I can talk about him behind his back in front of 500 people. So <laughs> that's why you don't leave the church because if you leave, you're in a sermon. <laughs> Just letting you know, okay? I'm kidding. Anyways, my, my guy Scott, he comes in one day, he's got this enormous tattoo on his arm and he's like, Pastor, look at my tattoo. And I was like, that's a tattoo. He's really proud and he's like, hey, this tattoo is anti-cancer. And I was like, to let everyone know that I'm anti-cancer, I was like, Scott, we're all anti-cancer. I was like, I don't have a tattoo, but I hope people would understand I'm not for it. You know what I mean? You don't see people like hashtag bring cancer back. You know what I mean? Making cancer cool again. We don't rep that. Come on, somebody. We're all against it. So I was like, you know, nice artwork, but we didn't need to know that you were against it. Likewise, I don't think anybody that was listening to Jesus is like, well, we're the pro-murder people, you know, that, that group right there. Jesus gets an amen, just like from us, okay? You've heard it said. This is what our ancestors were told. God made a law. You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But this is where Jesus comes in and he gets radical. That was not the radical part. That was the boilerplate part. Here's the radical part. He says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. What? If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Oh, that takes it a little deeper. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never murdered anyone. And we don't need to raise hands on this. If you have, just keep it to yourself between you and Jesus and the courts. But anyways, when I drive on the Beltline in Eugene, Oregon, how many of your blood pressure actually went up when I said Beltline... Because when you get on those on-ramps, how many of you know, it's merge like a zipper. (laughs) And I don't know how many times I've been either on the freeway or I'm on the on-ramp. And we have short on-ramps. You know what I mean? A lot of them on the belt line. And we'll we'll be heading, you know, getting on the belt line. And it's like the person, and probably one of you people, right? And probably me doing it too. So it's us, right? But you're getting onto the freeway and somebody comes and they match your speed. Do you ever have this? And I wish we had an intercom that was like, alter your speed. I can't get on. There's a river right there. How many of you have these experiences? And have you ever said any words to the window? And Jesus is is like, hey, that's not cool. Because in your heart, there's a seed that grows into a tree. And we all go, hey, I'm against the tree of murder. What about the seed of anger? And so Jesus says it's a deeper thing than just not to violate the commandment, not to murder. God was actually after something a little bit deeper. We go on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, he says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Again, even taking a, a straw poll amongst people in culture, most people would go, Yeah, if you make a commitment to somebody and you're married, you need to be honored, honor that commitment, you need to be faithful. I don't appreciate it if my spouse cheated on me. Like, we kind of get this idea. We understand that sort of moral prohibition against that and the reason why it's there. But Jesus takes it deeper. He says, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And ladies, just because this is in the masculine pronoun doesn't mean you're off limits. It's talking about for any human that lust is the seed that becomes the tree of adultery, this thing that, is, that wrecks lives, this thing that destroys trust and burns relationships down to the ground, that the seed of that is lust. And God doesn't want to just eliminate the forest of sin in your life. He wants to get the seeds out of the garden of your heart. Come on. You see, most of our life, we spend time trying to deal with the forest of sin. And what God is after is getting the seeds right in the soil. Come on. We're dealing with the symptoms. We're like chopping wood coming at lust and coming at anger and like, why do I have to drive on the belt line? And we're dealing with it all the time. We've got this big ax and we feel like we're never making any progress. And Jesus is not just trying to wreck us by elevating the standard. He's actually trying to point us in the direction of where real hope and real help comes from. And so he reframes these things in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, the last one. He says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy.'" And this is rational. This is reasonable. If somebody's nice to you, you're nice to them. If they know how to merge like a zipper, you're nice. If they don't, you're mad and you wish they would drive into the Willamette River, you know? It's easy and it's natural to love those who are kind to you, to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy, those that are against you. But, but Jesus, again, reframes. He says, but I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. I want you to mark that in your minds, because this is the interpretive key to a lot of what we're going to look at today, is this concept of being a child of God, okay? So hold that in your heart. You will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. In the original Greek here, it actually is the word husky. Even huskies. Um, I think actually some scholars believe it actually is Seahawks fans there. Um, but uh, I'm just presenting humbly of the research for you today. But even pagans do that. How many of you love me? All right. Let's just seeing if anybody here loves Jesus. Okay. I feel a lot of hostility coming at me today. Help me, Jesus. It's my own fault. Jesus goes on, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is a scary line right there. See, I would call myself a recovered, maybe recovering, but I would say even recovered perfectionist, uh, where I spent a lot of my life worried about doing everything exactly right, and I would kind of take on a lot of mental anguish if I didn't get everything totally right. And by the grace of God, I can tell you, honestly, I don't, I don't fall into that all the time. I mean, I'm, you're like, we know, we've heard you preach. You're not worried about perfection. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm okay to make mistakes and, and whatnot. So Jesus is not talking about sort of a perfectionistic, sinful, I have to make myself perfect. What he's saying here is that God's standard rightness with God is that you would be like God and God is perfect. God, God, when he plays golf, he scores 18. Okay? When God is on the belt line, even if the person doesn't merge like a zipper, his heart of kindness and love is still for that person. God God doesn't mess up relationships. God doesn't look to uh, take advantage of anyone in any way. He's perfect, and Jesus says that is what the goal is. This is what it means to be right with God. He raises the standard from keep the commandments in other words, God, where are the lines and let me make sure that I get as close as possible without crossing over, he completely takes away that option from us and says that was never really the idea or the goal. The goal of marriage is not to go as far as you can in your heart, mind, and body with somebody else who's not your spouse without crossing that line. That's not the goal because what that actually shows is a heart that isn't really faithful and loyal to the person that you're married to. How many of you go, yeah, amen, I don't want somebody to cheat on me, but I also don't want them to be thinking about it all the time. I also don't want them to be in their heart and mind already in that act because that's the seed of the tree. Likewise, in this thing with anger, all these things that Jesus takes on, he's identifying the fact that God doesn't just want to take out the tree. He wants to deal with the seeds that get planted in the garden. And so the standard is raised from keep the commandments to this standard of perfection. Now, if we were to just end the message right now, it's kind of a pretty scary, sad, hard message. Because when Jesus gives this sermon, uh, if that's all that we ever hear, like, okay, the standard is perfection. How many of you would go, well, to be honest, I fall short of perfection. Again, some of you that are the pro-murder people aren't willing to raise their hands. But (laughs) I would be so bold as to say that all of us fall short of that standard of perfection The scripture tells us in Romans that all of us fall short of the glory of God. When I measure my life against God, I fall short. I don't don't measure up to the full standard because his standard is perfect. Now, here's the deal. When Jesus tells us to be perfect, what is he after here? To make you feel bad? No. What he wants us to do is to recognize that we cannot be perfect, and therefore, there must be another path. You see, Jesus is telling us to fly, but we're all fish. We all swim in the sea. And no matter how hard you want to be, how much you want to be an eagle, if you're a trout, that's what you are. If you are lost and dead in your sin, and you've, all, and you've sinned one time in your entire life, you can't be perfect. You've already transgressed that standard of perfection. So what Jesus is identifying here is that the standard to be right with God is impossible to attain to in your own strength. So then what? Next, let me give you three thoughts about this, because I think as we see what God is actually after, it'll help us to catch hold of what Jesus is saying and how powerful it really is. Number one, God wants sons and daughters, not robots. See, most of our natural way of thinking about following God is let me hear the programming, give me the programming, tell me the rules, tell me the laws, tell me what's right, and then I will follow that programming and how many of you have ever, like me, wished you were a robot, and God could just push some buttons, and you would just do the right thing? Because I struggle to do the right thing, right? I'm like Paul in Romans chapter 7. I, I know what I should do, but I don't do that, and what I want to do, I don't practice, and I, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And he sounds like kind of like schizophrenic, you know, at the bus station going back and forth in that passage. Some of you are like so nervous that I say things like this. <laughs> that's how I feel. It's like, man, I can't get it right with God. Uh, So I fall short of this standard. Um, I wish I was a robot sometimes, but that's never what God wanted to do. See, a robot does what it's programmed to do. At least we hope. How many of you are nervous with all the AI stuff we see on the news all the time that it's going to take over? (laughs) Bethany and I talk about this a lot. We're like, I'm a little nervous about that. But generally, a robot or a machine does what it's programmed to do. The designer puts the codes in and it does that. And what happens is In that case, there is no free will. A robot does not choose of its own free will. It does not choose to obey. It has to obey according to its programming. Because a robot has no free will, there is no possibility of love. One of the questions that I think has has been a big one and a good question throughout history is how can we have a loving God who's pure love, totally loving, and also all powerful who could do anything at any time in any way. There's nothing that he can't do. And also there be evil and suffering in the world. And what philosophers and scholars, some Christians, some other ones have said as well, God is tasked with creating the most good and loving world that he possibly can. And for God to create a world in which love is possible, there must also be the possibility where someone chooses to do that which is unloving, thus the existence of evil and suffering. You see, in a world in which God says everyone has to do what's right all the time, you can never hurt anyone, that now makes you a robot. You can't be a son or daughter. You can't out of your own free will and heart choose to love God, choose to follow him. Sons and daughters are not robots, they're not like that. Anybody that has kids, say amen. Your children have free will, you know that, right? I don't even have to, I don't have to prove it to you, you know it. Sometimes I wish I could push a button and my kids would do exactly what they're supposed to do. It would be like, okay, it's time to engage room cleaning mode. Beep, 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 beep. And then they, I will pick up my dirty underwear from the floor, put it in the basket that is literally 10 inches away. (laughs) I will take my dirty paper plates from the TV room and put them in the garbage because it is, again, 10 inches away. We can't do that, though, unless you invent it. Then we'll give you lots of money. But our children have free will. And that's what makes love and what makes this beautiful Christian word fellowship just the unity around shared purpose possible. We've discovered this newfound joy with our kids where as they get older, they're getting into music and they have their own um, putrid musical tastes with like Disney music and stuff that's just abominable to me. But I've heard that song, Peaches, 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 (laughs) like 75 times this week and I'm, I'm over it. I like Jack Black, but I'm over that. Uh, and so Bethany and I, we share music with our kids, and what's really cool is when we show them something that we enjoy, that we really like, and then they also really like it. Not faking it, but they actually really enjoy it. Recently, I was with the kids, Bethany was on a trip, and I said, hey guys, I wanna show you one of dad's old like, CDs that you know, I'm really into. And it came out when I was 10 years old. It's called Newsboys Going Public. <laughs> Anybody? And on the Newsboys Going Public, which I would say is a genre defining album of its time, uh, it's amazing music. Uh, it's definitely dated in the 90s, but it's still pretty cool. Newsboys Going Public, there's a song on there called Shine, and that was the mega hit from that album Shine. Make them wonder what you got, make them wish that they were not on the outside looking bored. Near, 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 near. Anybody? Where are my church kids, at? So. Shine, I showed my kids, and they were into it. They were totally digging it. And Jack has been playing that song. And, he, and, and, I'm, and if I can get Shine and not Peaches, 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 then, man, it's a great day in the Schmelzer house, OK? Now, here's the deal. I can't force, Bethany and I can't force our kids to like what we like. But when they do, when out of their own free will, they choose to like what we like, it's a really cool thing. And that's just with music. But what about with the things that we care about the most? What about our values as a family? What about the fact that we desire that our children would love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and have a deep passion for Jesus, that they would meet their Savior authentically and in reality and every day wake up with purpose and passion and not listen to the lies of culture that says your time plus slime plus chance and you don't matter. Do whatever you want because there's no hope. But I want them to understand and resonate with the gospel like I do. Are they going to fight sin every day like their dad and mom? Yes. But I want them to encounter that. And guess what? We can't force them to. We can parent them. We can pastor them. We can sure as heck make sure they're in church on Sunday. We can filter what they watch on TV and music and internet. Hey, did you know that God gave you parents to your children to actually parent them? That Though culture tells you that your four-year-old has a fully developed brain and can pick their gender and decide what they watch on TV, that they're wrong And that you can actually, as a parent with a fully developed brain, tell your children, no, you're not allowed to watch that? Did you know that? You do now. But you can't force your children. You can't make them a robot. You can't program them. But what you can do is pour into them. But when they begin, out of their own free will, as I see my children begin to love Jesus, not just because I told them to or we made them go to church, but because they feel the presence of God, that gets me pretty jacked up. I'm excited about it. When I see what matters most to me, that the good parts of Bethany and I, the the work that God has done in our lives begins to pass on into our children and it goes generational, that's exciting. And if we can think that way as sinful earthly mothers and fathers, how much more does God want to see us embody and look like Him, our Father in heaven? In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. They didn't have a context for robots in the first century. So what's the analogy that fits? Well, a slave in their culture, a slave was forced to do what the master wanted them to do. A slave could obey, but they didn't have to want to, but they were in fear. And Paul says, this is not what being a Christian is like. You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves or turns you into a Christian robot that has to do everything God does, whether you want to or not. He says, instead... You received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. When you begin to reframe your relationship with God, not as God make me do what's right so that you don't hurt me, into you're my father and I want to look like you, it changes everything about our walk with him. It changes everything because it's not us and him, it now becomes us together as family working this thing out. And God has invited you into his family. And God's children, we're learning to look like him. We're learning to think like him. We're learning to want what he wants and like what he likes. That when God shows us a CD, we're like, actually, that's slapping. That's pretty cool. That's kind of kicking. Number two, God wants your wanter. What is our wanter? Your wanter is your inmost desires and motivations. The drive of your desire, that thing by which your soul cries out for it, You hunger and thirst for it. It says in scripture, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is right belief, right relationship, right action before God, between you and God, between you and other people, and you and the, and the creation. It's, you're right with God. God wants that, that inward part of us to be focused upon him, like getting our satellite dish of our desire tuned into the station that he's playing. And this goes far beyond compliance. And this is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. And why is that? Because really from the beginning, God was after sons and daughters who wanted to look like him and be like him out of their own free will. Therefore, he wants to get after our hearts and our desires. He's not just looking for you to obey in an outward sense, just be in compliance. He wants to bring us to that transformed heart where we want what he wants. And it's not just a New Testament concept. Listen, in in, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to read this out of the message paraphrase. He says, this is the brand new covenant that I will make with Israel when the time comes. I will put my law within them, write it on their hearts, and be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer go around setting up schools to teach each other about God. They'll know me firsthand, the dull and the bright, the smart and the slow. I'll wipe the slate clean for each of them. I'll forget they ever sinned, God's decree. This is talking about the transformation of heart. See, Jewish people that would hear this message, they they knew that the way that they looked at God and their relationship with God was you go to school and you memorize scripture they would literally take pieces of scripture time you know put them in on little pieces of paper put them in a thing called a, I think a phylactery is what it was called maybe I'm wrong somebody can correct me but a little box they would wear on their forehead and it was like get God's word into my brain right that was like the idea like just force feed Godness into my brain and, and rewrite me program me God there was such a hunger and a desire to be like God, but what the prophet is clarifying here is God doesn't want it in a box on your head. He wants it not on the outside of you. He wants His goodness to be on the inside of you. And Jeremiah is saying God's going to do this. He's going to write it on their hearts. His law it means He's going to change that heart. Says so that another another prophet says God's going to give you a heart of flesh. He's going to take a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so Christ formation, becoming like Jesus from the inside, outside, has always been the goal. Paul says this in Galatians chapter four. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. This process of Christ formation, becoming like Jesus, this is the goal. We are to look like Jesus as sons and daughters of God. When Jesus gives his disciples at, at his ascension, He gives them what we call the Great Commission. This is the mission of the church. It was the mission of the church then. It's the mission of the church now. He says, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. From the the word go, Jesus' heart, his commission to his disciples was that that, they would make disciples. and And to see what that actually means, we have to look at that second phrase, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded what did Jesus command? Well, you go to the Sermon on the Mount. There's commands there, right? And what, what did Jesus, when he was asked, what are the two great commandments? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what Jesus was saying was, as you teach people to follow me, as you invite people to be my disciples, you are to instruct them what these commandments are. But knowing the heart of Jesus for obedience, what he was after was not just an external compliance. What he wanted was transformed hearts. People that choose to obey Jesus, not because they have to, but because they choose to, because they want to. God wants your wanter. Just to unpack the word obedience here for just a minute, there's levels of obedience, okay? The first level of obedience is disobedience. And this is where we are when we're not Christians. It's like, man, there might be a God, whatever, but I'm going to do my own thing, right? I'm going to follow uh, the ways of the flesh. I'm going to uh, even do things that are contrary to what God wants. I'm just going to do whatever I want. doesn't matter what God says. Now, as uh, Christians, sometimes I, I practice disobedience. You know, Sometimes I know what God wants me to do. I know it's not good for me, but I give into temptation or I do what's not right and thank God for the grace and mercy of Jesus to bring me back to repentance and to walk with him. But this is the first level of obedience, disobedience. And this is where, parents, you have children who were not Uh, They're not fully formed, fully functioning adults in like a two-, three-, four-year-old body. They actually have a lot of disobedience, and it's your job to bring them into level two. Level two is outward obedience, okay? Outward obedience is this, compliance. It's skin deep, right? It's not motivated internally. It's motivated externally, so it's surface level. It's short-term. In other words, I will do what you're telling me to do, but only while you're watching me. And then when you're gone... I'm going to go back to disobedience, right? So this level of obedience is sort of a level of tension. And really, its motivation is through fear of consequence. So like when we tell our kids, hey, if you keep doing this naughty behavior, you're going to lose Nintendo for a week or whatever. Or I'm going to delete that song Peaches from Spotify somehow. Uh, I'm going to do something. uh, Then there's a compliance to that that command. And that's good, because that's obedience. When my children actually obey me, I'm happy about that. But you know, the goal of obedience is not that they would only do what I want them to do when I'm directly telling them. Like we've been in a battle and our kids are doing really good with this. They're winning this battle and they're growing in this. We're on the verge of level three, but we're not quite there, of wash your hands every time you go to the bathroom. Every time, yes, be perfect as your father named Jake is perfect, there's like wash your hands every time. How many of you, even you pro-murder people, are pro washing your hands when you go to the bathroom, okay? Sometimes with our kids, it's like, hey, did you wash your hands? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, that's crazy, I didn't hear any water. What'd you do, lick it off, you know? I didn't hear it. And we're like, get back in there, I wanna hear that water, 30 seconds. Come on, if Chipotle employees can do it, so can you. You know, wash your, your hands. And our children are complying at that second level of obedience, that what I call outward obedience, because we say, look, if you don't do this, you're in trouble. you got to wash your hands. But you know what I don't want to do, and I don't want to be? I don't want my son Jack with his family and my grandkids to be walking out at Disneyland, and here's Grandpa Jake with the kid. Did you wash your hands? Jack, I didn't hear the water. I don't want to be doing that because I want him to move on to level three. Here's what level three of obedience is. Inward obedience. This is on the inside, coming from the inside out, it's motivated by love and knowledge and wisdom, not fear of consequence. Like, would you obey God even if he wasn't gonna slap you if you did the wrong thing? Would you obey God if there wasn't gonna instantly be pain in your life from that decision? What if it was actually gonna make you feel good, but you said no because you valued something else at a higher level than that? This is inward obedience. It wants what God wants, and it values God's heart above God's hand. God's hand representative of his discipline and correction, also his provision and blessing. So sometimes we're motivated to do what's right because we think, well, God will give me a cookie if I do the right thing, or God will spank my butt if I do the wrong thing. That's level two thinking. Level three obedience goes, God, I know who you are, and I wanna be like you because I'm your child, and I'm in this family with you, and I have a new identity. And because of that, I can say no to that which pulls me to my base animal nature and say yes to that which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Even if it's hard, even if it hurts, even if it's something I get criticized for, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to obey from from a new heart. God wants your wanter. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, it's an impossible standard unless your heart changes and you want what he wants. And it leads me to point number three, and we'll finish with this. The goal of all of this is to have a new root that leads to new fruit. I want you to think about a farmer that has an orchard and he's out there in an apple orchard and he's screaming at the tree. You need to do better. You need to work harder. You're not producing enough oranges. We'd be like, uh, Farmer Brown, are you okay? Because if it's an apple tree, It doesn't matter how hard it works, it's not gonna produce oranges. The prophet Isaiah said, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Even the hardest you try to be good and righteous and do the right thing, when you're not of a new root, if the tree's not different, it won't produce new fruit. And so the goal of all of this was not that we would get better, it's that we would be alive. We were dead, now we're alive. Somebody once said the gospel is not to make bad men good, it's to make dead men alive. It's not to try to get oranges out of apple trees, it's to get that old tree completely taken out from tree to seed and root, and it's gone, and there's now a new tree that produces righteousness, and that comes from the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Praise God. How many of you want that fruit in your life and around you? There is no law against these things. How do we get that? By being better, trying harder. No, that's like screaming at an orange, an apple tree to produce oranges or an orange tree to produce apples. No, we get that when we say, Holy Spirit, come in I understand that I'm a son or I'm a daughter, and I pray that you would help me to get these roots dug out. So when I find in myself, whether it be the tree form of anger or the seed form of anger, I submit that to you, I surrender that to you, and I listen to your voice, what you're asking me for today, and I give that to you, and I allow you, Holy Spirit, to come in and do your work and produce these good fruits in my life. Now, as we end here today, I wanna make sure you have something to go home with, and here's what the devil will do. The devil's really smart, the devil will try to get you to do good things in the wrong measure. And so the devil will bring a whole platter of what's wrong in your life. And he'll be like, you ready to eat this? Because you screwed up everything this week. You were mean to your wife. You were a jerk to your kids. You were yelling at people. You were speaking French, but bad words on the belt line. You watched that, you listened to that, you did this, you thought that, and he brings you this whole platter and it's overwhelming and it causes, it causes condemnation and shame and guilt. Here's what the Lord does for us as a parent, because again, he wants a son or a daughter. He comes to you and he says, hey child, let's work on this today. Like with our kids, we don't try to get them to go from zero to college in two days. We work with them at the level they're at. And so the voice of the Holy Spirit sounds different, not bringing condemnation and shame and too much. What he'll come to you is he'll whisper in your heart, he'll speak to you, you'll feel a sense, This anger thing in me is kinda, it's not good. This anger thing is what the Holy Spirit wants me to think about and work on this week, and he's gonna give you that, and he's gonna do some cultivation work in you. There's gonna be some pruning, there's gonna be some digging in the soil of your heart. And as you repent and say, okay God, I repent, I bring you this seed of anger, maybe I'm not murdering people, but I am pretty angry, I'm frustrated, I'm enraged, whatever. I'm going to give that to you and the Holy Spirit is going to produce gentleness and kindness and that good fruit in your life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your head and close your eyes today? If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I want to put my faith in Jesus. This is a great day to have a spiritual birthday. Every week people make this decision to put their faith in Christ. And hopefully what I said today spoke to you because the reality is that the first step of coming to Christ and repentance is to recognize you can't get to God in your own strength. No matter how good you're doing or how bad you're doing or where you are, the first step is to say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And the minute your heart cries out to Him and you cry out to Him as Lord and Savior and invite Him to to take leadership and ownership of your life, His grace and mercy comes rushing in like a flood. So if that's you today, you say, Pastor Jake, I want to start this journey of following Jesus. I want to put my faith in Christ today. Could you raise your hand so I can see? Just lift it up. Thank you so much. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome. Awesome awesome. Come on. Thank you. That's awesome. I see it. Come on. Awesome. All over the room. Anybody else? Come on. This is a great day to become a follower of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, let's pray this prayer together, and we're going to give you some steps in just a minute uh, to take. Let's pray this prayer together. Dear Jesus, I give you my heart. I give you my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for making me right with God. I receive your grace. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen.